Well, again, happy Father's Day to all you dads out there. Again, I just want to say how grateful I am for you and all that you're doing. And I pray, sincerely pray that you feel valued and cared for today. Again, in our culture, it's easy kind of to knock dads and kind of portray dads and even men as general, in general as maybe incompetent, not able to lead, not able to make wise decisions. But I know that's not true of you. And so I'm just grateful for all of the men at New City who make it what it is. And I hope you feel appreciated the way that you deserved and you feel uh, honored and cared for. And I'm just grateful to know many of you and how you make New City and our community a better place. As I begin today, I want to share a story of a time that I was in high school. If I can remember, this happened on two separate occasions where I was staying over the night at a friend's house who lived in a different neighborhood than I did. And at about midnight, one o'clock in the morning, something like that, a few of us would get together and we would play Ding Dong Ditch, essentially, but in the middle of the night. And so, you know, during the day, it's just kind of you ring a doorbell, you knock on the door, you run away, someone opens the door, they don't see you. Same concept, you just play it at night. And so what we would do is we'd ring our doorbell, knock on the door, and then we'd run to the other side of the street or hide behind some bushes. But we would go somewhere where we could see the door, see the people turn the light on, open the door, trying to look around, see who was out there. And it was really funny and it was a lot of fun. I didn't think much about it. I just kind of thought, oh, we're waking somebody up in the middle of the night. That's funny. They'll go back to sleep. Life will go on. Now, as I think about that now, as someone who is married and someone who has two young children in our house, if someone were to come to knock on my door at one o'clock in the morning and then run and hide, that would not be funny, right? I'd be calling the 911 saying, you know, something's about to happen. You should probably get here because I'm about to get somebody. Or if I'm being honest, I'm probably more likely the one to be gotten. But anyway, it would not be, I would not be able to go back to sleep. I would be worried the rest of the night because I have people in my house that I care for, and somebody's out there, and I can't find them. And so again, as, as, as an adult now, I'm thinking back on those times, and I'm like, man, why did I do that? But when I was in high school, I didn't really think about all the ramifications. I just thought it was funny. I didn't give a lot of thought to it. But now as I look back and I think about it more, I thought, man, that was something I probably should not have done. And I share that story because as we continue our series through the book of Revelation this morning, we're looking at this question. How do we know if we have compromised our faith? How do we know if we're following Jesus? And I'm not talking about maybe, you know, the big sins or the big times where we know, yes, I'm doing things maybe I shouldn't be doing, but what do we do with all of the times uh, that we maybe aren't quite thinking through what it is that we're doing and the implications that it could come with? What, how do we know if we've compromised our faith, if there's areas in our lives where things are going maybe not the way that, we, that they should. That's what we'll be looking at this morning. And so if you have a Bible, uh, you can open up to Revelation chapter 2. Uh, we were this morning be looking at the church of Thyatira. Uh, we are looking at the seven churches in Revelation to whom the book of Revelation is addressed to. And in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, uh, we get a little snippet for each church where Jesus, through John, is telling specific instructions to these churches and today we're in Thyatira. I'll give you some background behind the church in Thyatira. Uh, the economic pressure was really difficult, particularly for Christians, uh, because following Jesus precluded them or excluded them from some normal uh, activities in the life of the city. And so they had some economic pressures, particularly because they were Christian. Uh, Thyatira was actually the smallest town of all the seven churches uh, that are addressed in the book of Revelation. And it's also the smallest church, most likely, in the smallest town. So not much is known about Thyatira beyond the fact that there were a lot of trade guilds because there was a lot of various type of work. Think small, blue-collar, rural town. That is what you have in Thyatira. And so again, as we've talked about these past few weeks, this made it exceptionally difficult for Christians there 
Because in the first century Rome, you essentially were a part of trade guilds, which were essentially, you know, maybe social clubs or unions in some, in some, maybe some ways of trying to explain it, where basically people who lived in the same community that you did or had the same type of jobs would all gather together. You'd pay a yearly fee and you'd have dinners together about once or twice a month. You'd celebrate birthdays and funerals. Really, it was your tie to the community. It was also important if you did work to have relational connections and maybe networking connections. This was a vital part of life in the Roman Empire. The problem is, like the trade guilds, like everything else in life at that time, everything was tied to religious duty. And so they would often start the trade guild dinners and meetings with sacrifices to idols and to various deities and to gods. And so by partaking in the meal and even being there, you are pretty much complicitly kind of honoring and worshiping those gods. Sexual immorality was also a thing that happened in many of these trade guilds. And so if you're a Christian, this puts you in a difficult spot because you wanted to provide for your family but you didn't obviously want to do those things. And so that's where we find ourselves as we look at uh, the church of Thyatira. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 18, it says this, Write to the angel of the church in Thyatira, thus says the Son of God, the one whose eyes are like a fiery flame and whose feet are like bronze. So again, John here is pulling from his uh, description of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1 when Jesus reveals himself to John. John in chapter 1 is trying to probably, as best that he can in human words, explain what he sees and how Jesus is revealing himself. And so to each one of these churches, he's pulling from the descriptions in Revelation chapter 1 to, to tell the church that this revelation is from Jesus. And of course, it's not as if he's kind of pulling a random description for each church. Each church, he's pulling a relevant description that has to do uh, with things that they are experiencing, and this is no different. So we'll see how the idea of, of presenting Jesus as the one who has the eyes like a fiery flame and whose feet are like bronze is relevant to their situation. But basically he's saying that what I'm about to tell you is from Jesus to you. Verse 19, it says this, I know your works, your love, faithfulness, service, and endurance. And know that your last works are greater than the first. So he's, the condemnation, or the commendation rather, is that they're loving, is that they're faithful, that they serve one another, and most importantly, that they are enduring in the faith, even in the midst of difficult times. And so he said, and not only that, but they have grown in these things. When he says that your last works are greater than your first, what they're basically talking about is their sanctification, which is the biblical word to say that they're growing in the likeness of Jesus. You could say that they're growing in their discipleship. Now, now when we talk about discipleship, uh, I think sometimes it can be a confusing word. I think maybe a better word for our cultural context is when we think of discipleship, to, to maybe more likely think of it as apprenticeship. Because in our culture today, we kind of value the mind and the intellect, right? We, we kind of say, as long as you think about it, that's what's most important. And so sometimes, or I think oftentimes, we view discipleship as something where you got to read the Bible a lot, you got to join a Bible study, you got to memorize a lot of verses, and you got to be able to answer questions when people have doubts or questions about your faith, that you have to be able to answer them. And I, and I think maybe a better word is apprenticeship because following Jesus is not just about intellectual or mind or knowledge transfer. It's about our whole lives. And so an apprentice is not just learn from somebody, but they model their lives after that person. They emulate that person, not just in the workplace, but in, but in how they live their life. This is what a disciple would have been in the first century, that they followed Jesus, they lived with Jesus, they emulated Jesus. And so when it says love, faithfulness, service, endurance, none of those things have to do with intellect. 
They have to do with how their lives are shaped as they're following Jesus, as they're becoming apprentices of Jesus. They're growing, you could say, in their apprenticeship to Jesus. And so this is to be commended. However, they have an issue. And here's the issue. Verse 20 says this, But I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and teaches and deceives my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat meat sacrificed to idols. Now, Jezebel here could be one or two things, likely a combination of the two. In the Old Testament, at one point you had Ahab, who was the king of Israel. His wife, Jezebel, essentially entices Israel into Baal worship. In other words, to worshiping false gods. And at one point, she even, leave, even violently imposes it. And or the other reference could be that because of this, typically throughout the Old Testament, Jezebel is a proverbial name for someone who, who, who tolerates wickedness or spreads wickedness. So in other words, it's a false prophet who seduces with immoral teachings. That although they're faithful and they're following Jesus, there appear to be people in this church who have been enticed to pursue things that are dishonoring to God and dishonoring to others. And it appears that the church is tolerating it, that they're not doing anything about it. So what's happening here? Again, the issue likely at hand is that with the trade guilds and the other cultural pressures and things that are happening in that society, uh, you had to do certain things that were necessary for economic survival. So, example, being a part of these, these communities, these trade guilds, would entice you to be a part of false worship, sexual immorality, or maybe any other number of things that were dishonoring to God and dishonoring to others. So the question is, what were they supposed to do? Now, to us, we can maybe empathize with their plight, but we can say, well, it's obvious. You clearly don't eat meat sacrificed to idols. You clearly don't participate in idol worship. It's obvious. Why would you do those things? You clearly shouldn't do them. But the question for us is, while it's easy to look at someone else in another culture and point out their blind spots, we have to examine ours. What about our culture and our age are we blind to? What are the things that we just accept because that's the way things are, but we don't take any time critically thinking about whether or not these things are good for us. Let me just give you some examples. And I'm not saying any of these things are right and wrong. I think it's different depending on the person. But what are some things in our culture that we sometimes do or accept as the way things are that can lead us to places we don't want to be, but we don't take any time intentionally thinking about whether these things are good for us? Uh, and so here's some common example. Let's talk about maybe social media and social media platforms, right? Is it true that we should be on all social media platforms? I know everyone's on them. And so, but the question for us is, do we, we need to examine what is good, what is not good for us. How do we engage in social media? Just because everybody's doing it, there might be things that we ought to refrain from. In our culture today, being busy is a, is a, is a signal of virtue, right? Everybody's busy. Everybody has a lot of things going on. What's interesting is that we need to understand that busyness is actually a choice, and busyness, scripturally speaking, is not a good thing. I mean, look at the life of Jesus, who had the, he had the most important task, right, in all of human history. You cannot ever read the Gospels and see a man who is busy. He always had time for people and for the things that were important. And so we kind of accept busyness as the way things are, or we hold it as a badge of honor. We're culturally speaking, that's actually, or sorry, biblically speaking, that should actually give us pause. In the same way, maybe let's talk about maybe Netflix and binging TV shows. And again, I'm not saying we shouldn't relax and I'm not saying we shouldn't have time for ourselves. But the irony thing, at least as we observe cultures, that everybody's busy, but at the same time, everybody knows what's going on in their latest shows. And we could like name like five or seven of the things that we're most recently watching. 
right? We're busy, but we're watching a lot of TV because that's the culturally acceptable thing to do. What else are we supposed to do at night, right? Are we actually thinking, man, what is good for us? And what is the best way to use our time? Uh, sexual sins in our culture, right? Everybody is doing it. The biblical sexual ethic of sexual relationships being reserved between a man and a woman in, uh, in marriage uh, it seems kind of outdated. It seems kind of oppressive. And so, of course, we, kind of, we should engage in the way that our culture is engaging because everybody else is doing it. Or what about maybe career compromises, right? If you want to get ahead in your career, there might be corners you need to cut. There might be things that you need to do that you would say, yeah, they're wrong, but I sincerely love Jesus. And if I can maybe climb the corporate ladder or move up in my business or my company, it'll allow me greater influence, which may be true, but there might be things that you have to compromise along the way, right? What are things in our culture where when we are, if we're not thinking about it intentionally, that we just kind of absorb that are actually problematic. You see, the problem here with what's happening in Thyatira is not simply that these believers were engaging in these things, but they were also not intentionally thinking about what they should do, right? The problem is not that they were just doing these things, but they could have been avoided if they would take some time to say, oh, wait, what is happening in my culture? What is actually God honoring? What should I actually think through and not just accept as normal before I actually engage in it? Which leads to this point, that holiness... Is not, isn't accidental. Holiness isn't accidental. When we talk about following Jesus and holiness basically being set apart, uh, being sanctified, growing more closer to Jesus, it doesn't happen by accident. I think sometimes we might view people who are, if you think about the people who are older in the faith or people that have been following Jesus for a while, and people who have a spiritual maturity that you admire, we sometimes think, well, that's just because they've been following Jesus for a while and that's what happens. But the reality is the people that you admire spiritually who have a strong, vibrant faith in Jesus, it's not simply that they've been Christians for a long time. It's also because they have developed spiritual practices that they're intentional to that allows them to be at a place where they're serious about sin and they're serious about it loving other people. Holiness isn't accidental. It reminds me of a book uh, by James Smith that's entitled, You Are What You Love. And in this book, he talks about how knowing isn't the same thing as doing something, which isn't the same thing as wanting to do something. Again, the book is titled, You Are What You Love, because in our culture today, we falsely believe that basically what you think is the most important thing, right? The, the, the saying by Descartes that you are, I think, therefore I am, right? That's kind of the, the mantra that we've lived by. But we know that's not true. Why? Because we know a lot of things, but just because you know something doesn't mean you'll actually do it. And it also doesn't mean that you actually want to do it, right? You know how to be healthy. You know how to be wise with your money. You know how to maybe spend your time better. But the problem is, it's not always what we want to do. Knowing isn't the same thing as doing, which isn't the same thing as actually wanting to do it. And so the question is, how do we get to the place where we love the right things? And James Smith in his book would argue that we need to develop practices and disciplines that would reorient our heart to love the right things because knowing about it isn't the same thing as doing it every once in a while, which isn't the same thing as doing it consistently. And the only way we can do create healthy habits and to do them consistently is to actually want to do them. And so he gives this example of what this looks like in the book. Uh, James Smith, he's from the Midwest. He's like, I'm a meat and potatoes guy. That's what I grew up eating. He said, the only thing that I love more than meat and potatoes is chocolate. And so I've developed habits over my life to eat things that maybe 
are the most healthy for me. And so he said a few years ago, uh, his wife got into healthy eating. She's reading all these books, you know, organic, fair trade, you know, farm to table, even the animals or even the meat that they eat. She said, he said his wife would call them happy cows or happy pigs or happy chickens. Um, they were raised in humane environments and they were even killed in a humane way. It's all about healthy eating. And so she would tell him about all these things and he would reject it. He didn't want anything to do with it until finally he succumbed and read some of the books that she recommended. And he says, as I'm reading these books, I'm like, oh, my wife is right. He said, this is true. How we eat matters. How I feel matters. Where our food comes from matters. He said, but the problem is every time I went to the grocery store, I still wanted the things that I have always eaten, right? Because I've trained myself to pursue those things. And he said, this came to a head one day where he's reading one of these books about healthy eating and organic eating and all of that in the middle of a, of a food court and Costco, which if you don't know anything about Costco is probably the antithesis of what these people would promote when it comes to healthy eating. It's a big box store where things are mass produced. And he said, I'm reading this book. I'm underlining things. I'm saying, this is absolutely right. How dare people not follow this guidance? He said, while I'm eating a Costco hot dog. In other words, he said, I'm not eating a hot dog from a happy pig, right? I'm reading a book saying I agree with these things and yet my actions could not be further from what I actually know is true. So knowing something is not the same thing as doing something. It's not the same thing as wanting to do something. And so when it comes to our apprenticeship to Jesus and this idea that holiness isn't accidental, it's not just about knowing what to do, but it's about cultivating habits and practices in our lives that reorientate our hearts to pursue God so that we are more intentional about the things and the activities that we participate in and so that we actually can come to a place where we are growing closer to Jesus, that we are pursuing holiness, that we are repenting of sin, that only happens if our heart is changed. Holiness is not accidental. We can't actually stumble upon it. We've got to be critically pursuing it, which is the problem here, that some of the believers weren't. And so here's what he says next, verse 21. It says, I gave her time to repent. Talking about the church here where there's uh, unbelieving or, or sinful practices going on, where no one seems to be doing anything about it. Says I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to repent of her sexual immorality. So God is this is happening for some time now. God has given time for repentance, but nothing of the sort has occurred. And when it says sexual immorality here, he could be specifically talking about sexual immorality or. Uh, throughout the Old Testament, sexual immorality was a metaphor for sin, for leaving our first love, for abandoning God. And so whether it's particularly about sexual immorality or just sins in general, they're not repenting. They're kind of continuing in their own way. So here's what he says, verse 22. It says, look, I will throw her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great affliction unless they repent of her works. I will strike her children dead, and then all the churches will know that I am the one who examines the minds and the hearts, and I will give to each of you according to your works. So again, he's saying those who have followed the spirit of Jezebel, who think that I can do whatever I want, what doesn't matter, this will not continue forever, that we will be judged for what we do and how we live. And again, the issue, the problem here is not that they had people maybe coming into the church who were outright, outright claiming and telling people to disagree, disregard God or to abandon God or to do whatever they want. That's not what's happening here. What's happening is that people have come in falsely speaking for God and were condoning sin, essentially saying it's okay to do these things and still pursue Jesus. Just say you love God and it's okay how you behave, how you act doesn't matter as long as you just claim that Jesus is the one that you're after. And what he's saying here, what Jesus through John is actually saying here 
is that Jesus will judge sin and its effects. That Jesus, like we saw in verse 18, has eyes like a fiery flame, that he sees everything and that what we do actually matters, that he will judge sin and its effects. And so what is he telling them to do? He's telling them to repent, which is, again, fascinating. As we see every week, you've got these churches doing various things that are sinful, that are against God. And what does he always say? Repent. Why? Because God is a gracious and merciful God who is desiring to give us grace and forgiveness. And he says, if you repent and turn and follow me, you will experience the grace that I have for you. He says, he repent. Now, how do we get to the place where we repent? How do we get to the place where we're pursuing God, we're loving other people? Well, to get there, we have to ask ourselves, we have to examine ourselves of what we are doing. Right? We have to be able to say, hey, what is going on in my life, intentionally thinking about it, that I need to be aware of, that I need to be thinking of? Let me give you an example of what this looks like. Uh, and this is kind of a lighthearted example. And I don't know how I still remember this, but back in, maybe when I was in middle school age, I was with my grandmother one day, and I asked her, I said, I was, for some reason, I was wondering if I chewed with my mouth open. And so I said, next time I eat, if you can watch me eat and let me know if I chew with my mouth open. And immediately she responds by saying, yes, you chew with your mouth open. To which I'm thinking, man, grandma, like let a brother down easy. You don't just got to tell me so quickly, right? What would happen there was I thought, I got to think about this. I wonder if this is a thing. Let me ask about it. And she had seen something that was quite obvious, but I had never thought about it before. Right? And again, it's not that necessarily uh, that, what, that you know, chewing with your mouth opening is a sin, right? but what's happening here is I was engaging in something, never thought about it until I actually was intentional in trying to figure out what was actually going on. It reminds us of what the psalmist says in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Here's what he writes. He says, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. But this is about intentionally going before God and saying, God, where in my life am I not thinking critically? Where in my life am I accepting the cultural practices in our culture and not wondering, is this something I should pursue? How is this affecting me or what I should do about it? In other words, here's the point I want to make here. And that's just that ongoing sin often continues not because we don't care, but because we don't think about it. Ongoing sin often continues not because we don't care, but simply because we don't think about it. Again, there, are, there might be big things in our life that, yes, we're trying to justify away, but in my experience, many times we get caught up into things, and it's not because we don't care. It's not because we don't want to honor God. It's not because we don't want to pursue God more faithfully. We're just not thinking about what we're doing, right? So for the question is, where are you chewing with your mouth open, right? Where am I chewing with my mouth open? The only way to know is to ask. And in fact, a couple of weeks ago, as I was spending some time in prayer, this is where I was. I was, you know, going for God, and I was like, yes, I know I'm not perfect. I've got issues. But I was asking God to reveal to me areas in my life where I needed to grow in holiness, areas in my life where I needed to be more like Jesus. And within a 24-hour period, this is, this is completely true, within a 24-hour period of spending time asking God to do this in me, I had three separate people independently of one another come to me and essentially tell me that I, I had not responded with compassion and caring to a situation that involved them in the manner that in which I should. And they all said, it's not because we, we know you that you care, but how you responded, what you said made it seem like 
you didn't, right? God was revealing in me an area of needed growth, right? Compassion and caring for others. And just because it's not a, maybe, maybe not a, something that comes natural to me, it's not an excuse not to be this way, right? Praying and going before God to reveal to me areas that I needed to grow. And that's exactly what he did. Listen, God loves you. God cares for you. God is pursuing you. And actually being honest and asking God, where in my life am I not thinking? Am I not following? Can you reveal to me areas where I need to grow in my sanctification, where I need to grow in my apprenticeship to Jesus? This is what I did. And God quite clearly showed you, Dylan, this is an area, this is an issue for you. Let me walk with you and let me show you what it looks like to be more compassionate and caring. Here's the thing. We need to think about our sin. Why? Because Jesus sees all of it, right? Jesus sees it all. Again, oftentimes we get caught up in sinful practices or in practices that are dishonoring to God, not because we don't care, because we're not thinking about it. And so like the psalmist, we need to go before God and ask him to reveal to us that places in our life where we might be compromising our faith without realizing it. That is what he's inviting us to do to avoid the situation that the believers in Thyatira are experiencing. So verse 24 continues by saying this, He says, I say to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, who haven't known the so-called secrets of Satan, as they say, I am not putting any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. Jesus here is distinguishing the sincere yet still imperfect believers and those who are abandoning God and searching in search of things of Satan or in search of things that are dishonoring to God. Now, we might be able to fool one another. We might be able to claim Jesus and kind of live the life that we want to live. But again, going back to what we saw in verse 18, the description of Jesus is that Jesus sees everything. That we might claim Jesus as some sort of cover to go and do what we want to do, but God knows and God actually judges our hearts. And so he's saying to those who are pursuing me, continue to pursue me. I place no other burden on you, but just honor and love me and allow me to transform your heart. But to those who are engaging in sinful practices and somewhat using me as a cover, you will be found out and you will be judged and you will receive the condemnation that you deserve. And this is, in light of this, as we see the heaviness of sin, that a righteous and holy God has to deal with it. It feels weighty and it feels heavy. And this is exactly why the gospel is good news, right? The bad news is that God is righteous and just and holy and that you and I aren't and that we've depended on our own performance and our own works to try to impress God, but we can't, right? We've got sin, we've got junk, we've got issues that we need to deal with. And so God sends Jesus to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Through his perfect life, death, burial, and resurrection, he accomplished for us what we can never accomplish on our own, that he has provided a way for the wrath of God to be appeased in the atoning work of Jesus on the cross. And so that anyone who trusts and believes and follows him, yet imperfect, receives the grace and mercy of God. And those who continue to live on their own way, thinking that they don't need God's grace, will one day fall on their hands and their knees before Jesus and realize that they have rejected the very one who gave them the ability to experience the life that they are so desperately after. The gospel is but what Christ has done for us, and it is simply asking us to be honest about our situation, that we're pursuing all of the wrong things to give us what only God can give us, and that in Christ... God has given us grace and mercy and love and holiness and perfection that we take on the inheritance that Jesus has received and that one day we get to enter into God's kingdom, not because of us, because of him. In the midst of our shame and condemnation, Jesus takes that on the cross. And so he says, continue to follow in that. If not, 
you and I will be rightfully judged for the sins that we have committed. But the gospel is that we can see and respond to the goodness of Jesus and follow him and allow us to, follow, to receive his salvation, to receive his grace, for him to reorient our hearts to the power of the Spirit, to live in communion with him and allow other people to experience the same thing. The gospel is good news because the bad news is what? That Jesus is one like a, has eyes like a fiery flame and sees our internal motivations and sees all of our actions and nothing gets by him. Yet in his grace, he has made a way for us to have a relationship with him by coming and doing for us on the cross what we could never do for ourselves. And so he says to those who are following him, continue in that way and you will receive the crown of life that God has for him. This is what he says in verse 26. He says, continuing this thought, the one who conquers and who keeps my works to the end, I will give him authority over all the nations and he will rule them with an iron scepter and he will shatter them like poverty or like pottery, that those that are in Christ will rule under and with Jesus when he returns and reestablishes his new kingdom. He says, all authority over all nations, which would have been a big prospect for a small church in a small town. In fact, it's a big prospect for us in a big and a dark world where we're seeing the racial injustices come to light, the coronavirus and the sickness and the financial burden and all the anxiety that that is producing, that we are seeing a dark and a heavy world. And yet, this is what God has authority over and will invite us into that reign with him for those that are in Christ. That Jesus, what does it say in verse 27? Will rule. He will rule. Now the literal translation of that word would be shepherd. Now it's translated rule instead of shepherd for a reason. I'll explain it for a second. Because if they put the word shepherd here, we would miss the meaning of what is going on. So you and I, when we hear the word shepherd, we often think of like tender, loving, kind, compassionate, which is who Jesus is. But that's not all Jesus is. See, a shepherd rules over his flock like a monarch, right? What a shepherd says goes. What a shepherd does, all the sheep must follow, right? And so with that, we want a shepherd, we want a ruler who is kind and compassionate. This is who Jesus is. He is the ruler. He is our shepherd. What he says goes, and he is inviting us into his perfect kingdom. And in fact, verse 27 is a reference to Psalm chapter 2, verse 9. And for those that would have been familiar with the Psalms, it would have kind of been like a hyperlink to Psalm chapter now, Psalm chapter 2 is, is, is what is known as the royal psalm. It was written at a time when Israel was under heavy duress, like the church in Thyatira is here, and it's essentially saying that the Messiah will come from the line of King David, that Jesus will come from David's line, David's uh, f- familial line to establish, to be our Messiah and to establish his new kingdom. And so Psalm chapter 2 was written under the same kind of duress that the church in Thyatira is currently uh, experiencing, and what they're saying the good news is that the Messiah will one day rule. The Messiah will have uh, authority over all creation. And your invitation is to partake in that for those that are in Jesus. And he finishes by saying this in verse 28. He says, just as I have received this from my father, I will also give him the morning star. Let anyone who has ears to hear, listen to what the spirit says to the churches. In other words, the ultimate reward for those that are in Christ is to be with God. And so he's encouraging them to endure, to listen, to follow, even though life is difficult, because they have a reward coming for them that they will one day get to reign with Christ, not because of what they have done, but because of what Christ has done. And the same is true for us. To kind of sum up, I guess, what's going on here, here's what I would say the main point of this text for us to take away this morning as we try to apply what's happening in Thyatira and how that can impact our life today. Here's what I would say. 
that enduring faithfulness is a present decision. Enduring faithfulness is a present decision. If we want to get to the place where we're following Jesus, where we are, our apprenticeship to Jesus is growing, where our discipleship and our love for God and for other people is growing, we have to endure. But the way we endure is by making decisions today. Right? Again, we often think that uh, becoming uh, more like Jesus just happens by being a Christian for a long time. And that's not the case. What happens is by making decisions today and tomorrow and next week, by developing spiritual habits and spiritual practices to reorient our love, so that we would pursue the things that are good and righteous and holy, that we would endure, but it starts with present decisions. It doesn't start next month. It doesn't start next year. It doesn't start five years from now. Enduring faithfulness starts today. So the question is, where do you need to endure? Where are areas in your life and in my life where we have not maybe taken the time to intentionally seek and pursue and to ask God or to ask others where we can grow in holiness, where we can be more like Jesus? The question is, where where do you and I need to shut our mouths? Where do you and I need to stop chewing with our mouth open? Where do you and I need to stop playing ding-dong ditch at midnight because we aren't actually critically thinking and pursuing God and asking God to reveal to us areas in our life that we are missing Him, that we are missing the goodness of what He offers, that that we're not following in the way of Jesus. Enduring faithfulness is a present decision. And the question for us today is where do we need to endure? What do we need to endure in? What do we need to pursue Jesus in? Where do we need to ask God to reveal to us with fresh eyes? Maybe the racial injustices that are going on. Maybe it's not that we we, we don't want to be racist, right? We, 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 We would say that these things are wrong, but what are the areas that we need to think about and be more intentional and allow God to show us the areas that we could do better and that we could love our brothers and sisters in need? with more compassion than we have in the past? Or where are the areas in our relationships, at our workplaces, in our relationship with Jesus that we need to endure and that are difficult? What do we need to do to say, God, would you reveal yourself to me? Would you show yourself to me to make the right decisions today to set me up for long-term faithfulness? Enduring faithfulness is a present decision. What we do today determines our faithfulness in the future. And Jesus is inviting us to see him to experiencing him. And that starts by going before God, asking him to reveal to us the areas that we are falling short and giving him, and asking for him to give us the strength, the courage, and the grace to endure so that as many people as possible might also get to partake in the kingdom of God that God has for those who love him. Again, enduring faithfulness is a present decision. And it is to that end that I invite you to pray with me. Uh, God, you are good and you are gracious And my prayer as we look at the the church of Thyatira and we consider in our own lives the areas that we may have compromised our faith, not because we wanted to, because we haven't been intentionally thinking about how we are honoring and loving you and loving others. Would you reveal to us areas in our lives that we need to endure and then also give us the courage and the strength to do that? Would you have put people in our lives that would love and encourage us along this path? And would you give us the power of the Holy Spirit to pursue holiness, not for our sake to say, look at us, but for our sake in the sense of experiencing more of you and being a part of your mission so that we can play our small part in helping other people experience more of you. God, would you help us be people of hope in this difficult time? Would you help us to endure? Would you help us make present decisions this week that will set us on the correct trajectory of loving you and loving others better? And finally, God, we thank you that all of these things are possible by your grace. 
that we don't do these things to earn your favor or that we do these things to earn your love. We do these things in response to your favor and to your love on our life. Would you help us endure? Would you help us be a people who are shining brightly for you as we go about our days and our lives and our workplaces and our families and our friends? Help us endure well for the sake of the gospel so that as many people as possible can see and experience you. Jesus, you are good to us. And it's in your name that I pray. Amen.